Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast, Australian Anaesthesia, where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. I want to point out that one of the fun parts of my job is handing out awards and recognising people for their significant contribution to anaesthesia. One of those is the award of honorary membership. The honorary member category is one of the oldest honours of the ASA and was first awarded in 1935. It's awarded to doctors and scientists and others who have been associated with the advancement or advocacy of the specialty or the profession. I was delighted that this year, Professor Alan Mary from Auckland, New Zealand, was nominated to receive honorary membership of the ASA. And that's who I'm chatting with in this episode. He's a leader, researcher, teacher, and advocate for the quality of safety in healthcare and anaesthesia. He has over 150 peer-reviewed journals and book chapters to his name, and has co-authored three books, as well as speaking regularly at international and national conferences. He teaches from medical students right through to supervising several doctoral students at any one time. He's held many leadership positions, some of which we go through in greater detail in this episode. Okay, hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for giving up some time to have a chat with me. And first of all, congratulations on being awarded honorary membership of the ASA. Well, thank you. And I'd just like to say how much that means and how privileged and excited I feel about that. So thank you so much for, for that award. I was just very impressed when I was going through what to say about you at the AGM and announcing why you are such a worthy candidate of honorary membership. I was slightly daunted, I must admit, at looking at your 70-page CV. <laughs> <laughs> and I was also just very honoured, I think. I've seen that you have received a lot of awards and honours. So I thought, geez, it's about time the ASA also got on board with, <laughs> with <laughs> nominating you for one. Exactly about all of that, except, of course, that I don't do anything on my own. I'm entirely involved with working with groups of people. And it's just very fortunate that I've been singled out about by, in this process, but also local awards, that is to say Australia and New Zealand, mean the most to me. And uh, I had a fair bit to do with the ASA for over the years. And I think uh, it's a very special award for me and I'm, I'm really super pleased with that. I'm very grateful. Thanks, Alan. Well, we're very delighted to have, to nominate you and have you accept the award as well. Now, you haven't always been a Kiwi, have you, going back through? You were born in Zimbabwe. (laughs) No, I do absolutely feel myself to be a Kiwi today, unequivocally, and and without any... I was born and brought up in Zimbabwe, which used to be called various other names. I think when I was born... It was called Southern Rhodesia, and then later I lived a little bit in Northern Rhodesia, and then when I was nine, we went back to Southern Rhodesia, and soon after that, there was a unilateral declaration of independence, and they changed the name to Rhodesia, and, you know, we were saying, God save the Queen, and then suddenly we weren't anymore, and it was all a bit interesting. And I went to school there, and then I actually went to university there at what was at that time called the Godfrey Huggard School of Medicine, which is now, I think, called the Zimbabwe School of Medicine. 
and did my medical training there and then worked for two years as a junior doctor there, which is rather different from the experience today of a junior doctor in a place like New Zealand or Australia. And we were, of course, also in the middle of uh, what I think is most usually called a push war. And I was never actually in the army, but I got pretty close to it working in some small hospitals and also even in the main centres, bombs were going off in supermarkets and we had you know, massive, massive missions to casualty to A&E of you know, maybe 50 people that had been in a supermarket where the bomb had gone off. And so, you know, the decision to leave was primarily driven by the terrible state of the country, but also I think it's fair to say that my wife Sally and I were not in sympathy with the politics. And, and that led us to leave. And we came to New Zealand in 1979. And we've been so terribly lucky that New Zealand has adopted us, allowed us to be part of this country. I can hardly believe what a privilege and how fortunate it is to be in that position. Uh, I love it here. I think it's a wonderful country. Of course, I'm totally enthusiastic with, our, with you know, the broad direction of the current government and our current prime minister. I think it's quite inspirational. So it's pretty fun. What made you choose New Zealand? It wasn't me. It was Sally, my wife, who um, chose New Zealand. I think I vaguely thought I was going to Switzerland because I looked at some pictures. It's only when we were flying over Australia that the penny dropped. (laughs) (laughs) Not Switzerland there. Lots of deserts. Well, you know, there's hills and cows and sheep and, you know, (laughs) anyway, we went initially to a town called Tokoroa, which... um, Many Australians may not have heard of it's. It's in the centre of the North Island, and the advertisements for the job talked about being close to lakes, skiing, the sea, and all the rest of it, which actually is true by international standards. But New Zealanders don't really see it as a in quite that light because so many other towns are just so much closer to those things. <laughs> I mean, I think we we're about an hour and a half from the sea and about an hour and a half from a skiing resort, and there was the lake pretty close, and there were forests all around us town of about 20,000 people, a logging town. And it was a great place to start. They made us very welcome. We were just general SHOs. Uh, and um, oh, it was a wonderful way to start in the country, actually. But we really intended, I think, to come for one year, which is such a common story. And here we still are. <laughs> so you came out to New Zealand as junior doctors. At, at what stage did you think you wanted to get into anaesthesia? I did six months of anesthesia in, in Zimbabwe. I was actually planning to become a psychiatrist most of the time through medical school, and I'd actually arranged in my second year SHO, because in those years you did one house, house officer year, and then you were registered, and you were, you know, it was a one-year process, and so after that you were sort of choosing a specialty. And a number of factors conspired to change my mind, but there was a pivotal meeting with a certain Mike James, who subsequently became professor in Cape Town, but at that time was a senior lecturer, a very junior senior lecturer, actually, and uh, he'd just come back from overseas, and he was quite inspirational, and so was the head of the department, a person called Ashley Duffy, and I had just heard that the professor of psychiatry was going to be on sabbatical, and I'd just come from that discussion, actually. And learned that he wasn't going to be around. And I was thinking, well, I'm probably going to waste my year. And I ran into Mike and he talked me into doing anesthesia instead. <laughs> and, you know, with the war going on and everything else, the practical nature of it actually was very, really relevant to what was going on around me. And I, I kind of liked it. I got quite a bit of training in that first six months in um, Zimbabwe, actually. But we spent six six weeks in the end in Tagaro and then moved to Rotorua. 
And I spent the year there as a surgical registrar, funnily enough. But I decided that I would like to go back into anesthesia, and the scheme took me. Even in those days, it was quite competitive, so I was very fortunate that they accepted me. And, uh, you know, it's interesting how those things have changed, actually, because I can still remember my first day of work at, at Middlemore Hospital. I did my very first list there unsupervised. I mean, there was an assistant supervisor, you know, sort of general overseer. And I just can't imagine we would do that now. They were just entirely going on the fact that they'd heard I'd done some anesthetics and they assumed I'd be able to do it. You know, fortunately I was, but it was more luck than good management. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to go back a little bit, if I could, back to just what it was like growing up in Zimbabwe. Boy, that's a a complex question. Obviously, I thought endlessly about it. My parents got divorced when I was nine. I was subsequently brought up by a side of mother who worked as a secretary. So by the standards of, let me just say, a white person in that country, we were not at all wealthy. But two or three things just conspired to make such a difference. And no question, we were privileged just by who we were. My mother went out of her way to get us into a zone which had a good school. And so I managed to get a good education, which is a huge, obviously just a game-changing thing, isn't it? I mean, that's just such an important thing. Obviously, as a child, you don't really understand the extent to which some of the things around you are, are terribly unjust and wrong. And, and, and then that became increasingly apparent. So, our medical school was, in fact, and our whole university was multiracial, actually. It was set up with a non-racial charter. At that time and in that place, that was quite exceptional. From the time I went into university, I became much more aware of what the issues were. And our university was actually focused on trying to produce people to work for all the all Zimbabweans. The idea was that they wanted us to go and be general medical officers in small parts of the country. So our training was very much oriented towards that. And there was a lot of emphasis on what we call social medicine, it's actually population health or public health, which actually I did best in. I came top of that, which I think is why I've always been interested in quality and safety, because they sort of related uh, ideas, I think. And so I sort of gradually got increasingly conflicted and unhappy because it was a very torn, difficult environment. And But I was very pleased to leave. I felt morally traumatized by the time we left, and I didn't go back for many years. About 10 years ago, I re-engaged and I've gone back quite a bit. When you go back, is it in a professional capacity? No, I go on holiday, but I have been in touch. I've I've taken the opportunity to go and see uh, the anesthetic community there. And what's really interesting about Zimbabwe is, uh, is that as of the last time I went, because things have gone worse now, they actually have very well-trained anaesthetists there. They know more about how to do medicine and anaesthesia in their context than I do. And they've actually got a reasonable amount of equipment too. Uh, the problem is that the structure of the government and the system is, is, is not good, and there's a lot of corruption, not amongst anaesthetists. I didn't think that anybody I met was corrupt. I think it's in the way the system runs. And I, I think it's a problem that I'm not well placed to help them with. I mean, it's a massively difficult problem. Now, of course, the anaesthetists are very poorly distributed. I think last time I looked, there's about 56 that would be recognised as specialists. And when you look at them, most of them would be, we would recognise them as specialists, but many of them are trained in the UK system. Some have trained in other countries. And about 
I can't remember exactly, but something like 52 of them are in Harare. And of those, quite a large number are in private practice. So if you move out of Harare, it's a very different deal. And a lot of anesthetics are given by nurse anesthetists or general practitioners, or not very well at all, I imagine. It's quite different. Sounds very similar. I could almost substitute the word Cambodia for Zimbabwe and say almost the same thing. Yeah, very similar distribution of the workforce and the training and corruption and things like that. You do have an interest in global health. How did that come about? I think it was Kester Brown's fault, actually. I was the chair of the New Zealand Committee of the College, and I got an invitation to go to Taipei, I think, to a meeting of the WFSA, the regional Asian and Australasian meeting, and I was the only Kiwi at the meeting. I think they got mixed up because I think they had intended to ask the president of our society. I only worked that out some years later. Uh, and anyway, Kester nobbled me and said, you've got to come to the um, General Assembly because you, we need a Kiwi in Europe. And so I felt a bit awkward because I didn't realise I was meant to be representing the society. So I phoned the then president. I won't tell you who it was, but uh, I woke him up at midnight and said, can I represent the society? And he said, anything so long as I can go back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of got onto the Asian Australasian Committee and got increasingly interested in the whole issue and then became involved with the WFSA and that led to the Global Oxidatory Project and hence LifeBlocks. And there's a New Zealand Vietnam Trust. And I went on their their second visit to Quinong, where New Zealand had a presence in the war. And it was very early after the opening of Vietnam, and I got a bit involved. But, you know, apart from that time, which I actually went and was involved on the ground and a few visits I've done in Zimbabwe and so on, I've mostly tried to help from an oversight administration, trying to make things happen for people who really want to do that, partly because, because I did a lot of work in Zimbabwe and small places and so on when I was young, and I don't find the idea of that particularly romantic. I mean, I think being able to help people is is important, but I'm very conscious of the different skill sets that you require to function under those conditions. There are actually a lot of very good people who really want to go and do work on the ground, and I, I think I've been able to do more really by trying to be part of making that possible or helping that to happen. And that's been my idea anyway. Um, and so I haven't actually all that much of going to places and being, you know, living under difficult circumstances and working under difficult circumstances, not in recent years anyway. I think that's a really important distinction to make. I don't think that's the majority of people, but I think the people who do it and do it well are are immensely valuable. So I've also been quite uh, conscious of the importance of one's home. So you know that I been involved with the Health Quality and Safety Commission. I was chair of its board for 10 years. In fact, I set it up here. And that was an amazing opportunity to just contribute to trying to help New Zealand's healthcare system be as good as it could be. And I've been just as or more interested in that because I think one's own home really matters. And although Australia and New Zealand have such fantastic healthcare systems, there is still room to improve. Again, in the same way, it is about systems change and trying to get the whole system to change. Not, not an easy thing, of course, but, but I think it's important. Exactly. It's hard work. It's complex. It takes a long time and it can be frustrating. So I think that people who, who are passionate about it 
deserve to, to follow their passion. <laughs> you make a good point there, and it's something that when I um, was going through your CV that really stood out to me is that you've not only held positions on committees, held leadership positions, but there's been a few instances where you were the founding chair, particularly on the commission. Do you want to just maybe talk a little bit more about what that was about and maybe how you got to be in that position to found that? That's Because that's incredible. Not everyone gets to form these bodies. No, I mean, you have to wonder why that happened. I mean, I thought I'm quite surprised that I was given that opportunity, but um, it goes back quite a long way because I think I'd been working in various policy initiatives, of course, notably the um, WHO checklist initiative, which is quite well known. People knew I'd been involved with that a lot, especially in New Zealand and, and working with other people, of course, notably Simon Mitchell, for example, and, and many others. Then there was a committee formed called the Quick Quality Improvement Group, I think it was called, something like that. And it was advisory, and I was asked to be on that, and I put my heart into that committee trying to get things to happen. And one of the things that committee recommended, I wasn't part of the process of making the recommendation, but it did recommend that a commission be set up to do this, the Health Quality and Safety Commission. So they then went through a process of seeking expressions of interest, and somebody persuaded me to just put my name forward. And the next thing, I was being interviewed by Minister Ryle, who was the Minister of Health at the time, and I think he was mostly testing my politics to make sure they weren't too left-wing. <laughs> the outcome of it was that he kind of said, well, fix policy for the next six months and I'll give you something else to do. <laughs> and one of the arguments I used to have with him was, you know, it's a long-term game and this is something that takes time. And he'd say, well, I'm only interested in three years, which happens to be the term of the New Zealand government. <laughs> He was a very good minister and he was just pointing out the political reality and it is one of the problems we face in healthcare is this continual change of, of the government. So, you know, then it was a matter of how to do it because I wish I could do it again in a way, although fortunately it's gone pretty well. The first thing you got to do is find a CEO. And I've done that a few times now, but that was a new experience at the time and it's a whole thing that I need to just don't get trained to do. Not many people are in these positions where you need to find a CEO and there's not many people you can go to to ask for advice. Yeah, absolutely. The college was very helpful because I'd been a counsellor already. The college is fantastic in investing in the development of its council. So they funded me to do, and I think the college did, actually either the college or the commission did, but it would have been one or the other anyway. It wouldn't have been to do the Institute of Directors course. I've done a huge number of those courses over the years and continue to be engaged with that. And so, you know, gradually I kind of probably more or less got the hang of it. It's so different from anaesthesia, you know. There's a pretty much a way of doing good anaesthetics and you're surrounded by colleagues doing the same thing. And there's a training system that produces an excellent anaesthetist. It's a bit of a black art uh, being a director or, or leading an organisation and there are lots of things people know, but it's not driven by randomised control trial evidence or anything like that. It is a case of being quite lucky if you manage to bottle through, I think, <laughs> as well, of course, as working hard. Yeah. I totally agree. I used to go to leadership courses earlier in my career and I was thinking it's not as concrete as learning anaesthesia. Yeah. There's lots of people just talking about their experiences and what they've learned. And I just thought, oh, is, is learning leadership just learning about anecdote after anecdote? Um, <laughs> but it, it is, it's more systematized now, but it is still, as you say, a black art is a good way to describe it. 
Yeah, and I used to really like going back into theatre and doing cases there because I felt it was like real work. You know, you were contributing to something that was concrete and you could see the results of what you'd done. And uh, I actually do quite strongly think that having a, a strong clinical background makes a very big difference to those roles because I was at least able to test what people were saying or wanting to do against the harsh reality of being a clinician and trying to function in the reality of, of, of our hospital systems. Yeah, I think they really value our input from the ground, don't they? Absolutely. I noticed that you've studied a law degree. No, I'm delighted you think so. I, I haven't done a law degree. Oh, I've beg your pardon. I've done a lot of reading and knowledge uh, about law. I am actually an a honorary fellow of the Faculty of Forensic Medicine ah, that in might the be. UK. Uh-huh. And I think that was a reflection of all I've done within the law, including writing a book called Errors Medicine and the Law, co-authoring it. And now that's been done twice because there's a second edition, which is quite a lot bigger than the first one. So I think that I, I, I do have a knowledge of a very narrow area of the law, the area related to healthcare and in particular to negligence. Would you ever be tempted, do you think? I was. And I think if I had my life again, it's something to think about. But, you know, I've had the privilege of working with wonderful lawyers who have been fantastic to work with and are very dedicated to trying to help and do good stuff. I think in Australia and New Zealand that we don't face criminal proceedings. It's very rare anyway. Exactly. It's possible, actually, but it would only be, I hope, at an appropriate threshold. But it certainly hasn't always been the way in New Zealand. And I think you, you've you been quite instrumental in, in affecting some of that change. Again, with other people. So in the 1990s, really, there was a series of prosecutions of healthcare professionals for manslaughter for civil errors in their practice. So I think there were three or four, either, I can't remember now exactly. You know, they were in the operating room, they weren't drunk, they weren't on drugs, they were actually trying to do the right thing and they'd just make a mistake and the patient ended up dying, not because of the mistake, but even that's uh, not certain. And then they were facing prosecution and sometimes were convicted for manslaughter. No, they weren't actually put in jail or anything like that. But I was very upset by that. I thought that was terrible. And the one in particular that involved a a mistake with the drug in an emergency, I thought could so easily have happened to me. I got really worried. You know, at that time I was doing cardiac anesthesia. The one thing you need for a manslaughter charge is a dead patient. And of course, cardiac has a mortality rate of two or three percent. So, you know, I actually think in some ways it's not those cases that lead to the trouble because they're complex and because they're well worked up and you're doing things at a high level. It's actually the young child having an appendix done or something like that 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 shouldn't die, but as we all know, can do if things go terribly wrong. I, I got really upset about it all, and so I seriously thought at that stage of giving up anesthesia or moving country, but in the end, with Leona Wilson and Bruce Corkle and uh, a surgeon, uh, Ross Blair, and a few other people, We formed something called the New Zealand Law Reform Group and we worked in parallel with the college and the society. And I spent three years of my life really on advocacy and reading and learning and getting experts to come and talk. And ultimately we did get the law changed, which was, I think, a surprise to many people. We were told many times it was not possible and that it was a waste of time to try, but uh, we did succeed. 
sitting in my role in that advocacy seat as well, I appreciate how hard you would have had to work and, you know, amazing achievements. Well, it did, get, it did uh, change my life a bit. I was arguing that errors of medicine were not crimes, but I came relatively convinced that we make too many mistakes. And so part of it was a sort of undertaking, especially when I was being challenged on all of this by various patient advocates and people that I thought that we should do something about it. And so that's really why I got interested in research into medication error and, and hence all these other things. So it just changed the direction of what I was interested in. I wouldn't probably be an academic today if it hadn't been for that. Do you, do you think that was your biggest achievement of your career? Just if you say again that it was done by a group of us. And, you know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about anesthesia. I think we are collaborative people. Mm. I think it was very important. Uh, I'm very pleased about it. It was, I think, an important thing to do. And that change and also the writing that's come out of it and so forth has been quite influential in Britain with the recent things that have been going on there. And in, I think it might be elsewhere too. So I think it was part, very much for us an important thing, but I think it has had an influence around the world more generally. So I think it's certainly something I feel very pleased we did. But I think it's hard to escape the conclusion that bias plays a role and being immigrant and ethnically are in line with the leading group, particularly in the UK and actually in New Zealand, is a, is a high-risk factor in these things. And it's disproportionate, I think, in the number of cases of prosecutions. But the, each country is different. We were quite lucky that we have a codified criminal law, which uh, three of the Australian states have. Three of the Australian states have got common law, but three have a codified law, very much like New Zealand's. And um, that meant we actually could change the law. But it's not necessarily the case. In the UK, for example, it's really common law. I've not heard that distinction before between common law and codified law. So common law is set by precedent? Yes, basically. Not all countries have a written criminal code. And funny enough, we all have, ours mostly comes from something called the Stevens Code, which was uh, promulgated by the UK on the colony, colonies. That's <laughs> something that was good for the colonies. It probably was quite good for them, actually, but they didn't adopt it themselves. And of course, Scottish law is distinct from English law. And Scotland has never had this problem. They have a much more sensible legal approach to this matter. I actually worked for a year as a registrar, and I can remember they had someone called the Procurator Fiscal, which is a bit like a public prosecutor, and he came and talked to us. And he said it wasn't his job to judge the standard of our care and that we would only get into trouble if we did something really, you know, really criminal and bad. So I thought that was a very good approach. I didn't realise you'd worked in Scotland. Just reflecting back, what do you think has been some of the highlights of your career so far? Well... You know, becoming a doctor was quite good. As I say, I didn't come from a wealthy background. And I think what it changed for me was the way my life would plan out. And then it's such a wonderful profession, really. And not that I've always found it easy or always felt that I was naturally a doctor because I'm actually come from a family of engineers and, and teachers. But I think that's been wonderful. And I think I, I do see myself as first and foremost a doctor. And, you know, these days I, I mostly do chronic pain work and I just love working with patients. I do think that patients are at the centre of what we do and I suppose you do that directly and then indirectly by these other means. But it's always been the thing that I've felt is most important. I'm not, by the way, claiming to have done it particularly well, but I am saying that's the thing that matters most to me. You mentioned research before and I, I see that you, you supervise a number of doctoral candidates. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
what sort of areas are you looking at? Oh, well, we variations on, on matters of either safety or quality usually, not always. I did early on a moderate number of analgesic studies and kind of got the hang of that to some extent. Of course, these things keep advancing. I got increasingly interested in what's actually a more difficult area to do research. And I do a lot of work with Jenny Willer uh, and also Simon Mitchell and other people. And we're even very interested in teamwork, human factors, uh, communication, and things of that sort. And simulation, of course, we, we did uh, quite a lot of work over the years on simulation. Simulation's become very topical with coronavirus. Oh, yeah. And the role that it has to play in terms of preparing people using their PPE, preparing us for different scenarios. Have you had much involvement with simulation in the current context? Well, our wider group certainly has. And people like Jane Torrey and uh, Jenny Weller and others. Uh, New Zealand must be the country that has done the most preparedness work for the least number of cases. <laughs> how, how is it going over there at the moment with coronavirus? Well, we're living on tenderhooks, I suppose, but the short answer is we've had another day today with no new community cases. We get cases at the border every day. You know, they're coming in, they get quarantined, of course. The border's tightly closed. I think yesterday we made it compulsory to wear masks on public transport for the first time. And that's a good move, I think. So I think I've got my mask in my pocket. Yes, I have. Honestly, the life here at the moment is pretty normal. The only thing is you can't travel. And that has got some real challenges for people. What do you think is coming in the future for anaesthesia and for coronavirus? Well, I'm not sure I know the answer to either of those questions. To deal with the second one, the last few days have changed my mind a little bit. I think the vaccine seems increasingly as if it's a realistic prospect on the horizon. I don't know how that's going to work out exactly, but I was sceptical. I'm not much less so. I'm talking to some of my colleagues who know about vaccines and things. It sounds like there may be hope there. So I'm hoping that will be the game changer. As to anaesthesia, I'm hugely proud of our specialty. I've been involved with it from the days when we were a faculty in the Surgeons College, and the society was actually the Strain Society and also the New Zealand Society, but actually particularly Strain Society first, were hugely important in, in the early days of developing the strength of the specialty. And this is an interesting point because I really believe patients need good anaesthetists. And that means that we need to be a profession that people want to do. And that implies that it's got to be at least reasonably well remunerated. It's got to be respected. And I think we've achieved all of those things. I think we're, we are now well respected. And we're particularly, I think, seen as a collaborative and patient-focused specialty to a large extent. And I think that will continue. I would like to see us adopt the name anesthesiology. I think it's mostly because of my interest in global health. And I think from a global health perspective, it'll make the discourse easier because we'll be able to distinguish between people who give anesthetics, which would all be able to call themselves anesthetists, whatever else they are or not, and people who are specialty trained doctors like us who should be called anesthesiologists. I wouldn't die just over this issue, but I think it would be a useful distinction and I'd like to see it happen. I used to be very conservative, but I, with the global health work, I've become increasingly convinced that'll be useful if we did that.
It would also make us more in line uh, Europe, America, Canada. That's the main reason I give for supporting the name change to anesthesiology, mm-hmm. but that opens a can of worms in itself. So I'm sure if I'm going to get feedback from this podcast, it'll be to that comment. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, I, I don't, it's an interesting question because I know people worry about it for various reasons. And some people just like it for historic reasons. But I, and I, you know, I don't think it matters that much, but I, I just would quite like it. Can I squeeze in one just final question? If you could say give either the trainees of today or yourself advice from you today, what advice would you give? I think absolutely always put your patient first. Uh, that's got to be the thing. And it may mean that you disrupt other things at times and it costs you socially or it may even cost you in the context of private practice or other things, but you'll never regret it. I'm not, also not claiming to have always done that, but I can tell you if you look at the things you're pleased about and the things you regret, I have never regretted putting patients first, and I think that would be my number one piece of advice. That is a lovely piece of advice. And with that, I can't thank you enough for giving up some time and chatting with me and congratulate you also once again for being honorary member of the ASA. Well, once again, thank you so much. It's been really a huge privilege to be interviewed by you. I really enjoyed it, so thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. That was just such a, such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. He is really just a wonderful, warm, generous person. Honorary membership is one of the many awards provided by the ASA in recognition of the contributions of our members and other leaders in the profession. If you think someone has also been outstanding, then do feel free to nominate them. Any ASA member can nominate a peer for an award, and the details are in the ASA bylaws. If you're not an ASA member and you would like to nominate someone, then why don't you consider joining the ASA? More details are available on the ASA website, asa.org.au, and I'll even put a link in the show notes. Okay, hope you enjoyed listening. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.